Chapter fifty one of Dead Men's Shoes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Judy Mason. Dead Men's Shoes by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter fifty one. Mr. Levison cross examines. The inquest is resumed on the following day at eleven in a room closely packed with eager spectators. Among them the elite of Redcastle are to be distinguished. The elite are deeply interested in the issue of this inquiry. Have they not taken Sibyl, as it were, to their bosoms? Admitted her to those sacred hearths where never lowered the shadow of evil? And is it not incumbent upon her, for their sakes, for their untainted reputes, to clear herself of this hideous charge? Her own shame, her own guilt, her own undeserved agony, if innocent, are of secondary consideration. She has visited us, cried the elite. How dreadful it will be for us if it turns out that she has poisoned her uncle. People will say they met her in our houses quite a disgrace to happen to one dear mrs stormont says mrs groshen actually humiliating my dear replies mrs stormont the prevailing opinion in redcastle is that sibyl has done the deed perhaps had stephen trenchard endowed her with a million of money popular feeling might have leaned the other way it is difficult to suppose that the possessor of a million can err the property qualification once necessary to members of parliament so many hundred per annum as a pledge of respectability runs through life qualified with a million no one could have imagined sibyl a poisoner but disappointed deluded penniless an abject failure as much a disappointment to friends as to herself sibyl now appears in the light of a base and insidious schemer who has well merited the disappointment of her schemes and what is this last revelation asks redcastle indignantly when the story of mr secretan's arrival at the jail with his wife gets no one knows how into active circulation what is this about a husband what she's been deceiving us all this time she has been parading herself in fine dresses which may never be paid for she has been spreading her silken train like a peacock's tail and showing herself off in her false colours as an unmarried woman to the detriment of our daughters she has been exercising her wicked fascinations upon our sons she has flirted with our husbands even and has taken us all in with her pretended innocence and affected girlishness the husband must be as bad as the wife says redcastle and various are the speculations and statements as to mr secretan's character the inquest begins and here he is standing behind his wife's chair as she sits in the place of the accused the focus of every pitiless eye eyes that have once looked kindly at her eyes that have admired there is fred stormont with his mouth open standing on tiptoe to look over his father's shoulder as if he were at a play 
stay there is one face not quite unpitying dr mitson sits yonder near the coroner grave watchful and with a look which sibyl takes for sympathy really a handsome young man whispers mrs stormont through that thick veil of hers to mrs groshen he looks like a gentleman too rather the air of an adventurer i fancy replies mrs groshen the witnesses are examined and there is much repetition of evidence given on the previous examination joel pilgrim calm precise and faultless of intonation relates the discovery of mr trenchard's death at what hour had you last seen him alive inquires the coroner at ten o'clock on the previous evening when i bade him good night you had access to him at any hour of the night i believe interposes mr levison joel looks at the questioner somewhat insolently am i to answer this person's questions he inquires of the coroner yes so long as they are relevant to the case i don't know what you mean by having access answers joel mr trenchard's bedroom door was locked there was a second door but that opened on a back landing and was only used by the butler but it was equally convenient for you had you wanted to see mr trenchard in the night i think says mr levinson i don't see that answers joel curtly don't you allow me to make the fact clearer to you here is a little plan of the landing on the back staircase he exhibits a sheet of cartridge paper with the ground plan in pen and ink here are doors numbered one two three number one mr trenchard's bedroom number two his dressing room number three your bedroom you perceive that from the secondary door of your bedroom to the secondary door of mr trenchard's bedroom is but a step that is right enough but i never entered mr trenchard's room by that secondary door what not upon the night but one before the murder when you had an important conversation with mr trenchard upon financial matters a conversation which was overheard by a witness i shall produce by and by overheard in consequence of your having left that secondary door ajar mr levison looks fixedly at the witness as he asks this question mr secretan's eyes are also turned upon that tawny countenance and every eye in the court follows those other eyes a curious change comes over that dusky complexion of mr pilgrim's it is not pallor but rather a deeper tint of olive which makes him look like a sufferer in an advanced stage of yellow jaundice did you make use of that secondary door asks levison never replies the witness resolutely and you have no recollection of that particular conversation i can recall no particular conversation of the kind mr trenchard and i had been in business together and had many conversations upon financial matters was not some of mr trenchard's capital engaged in your business at the time of his death mr trenchard took all he could take out of the business when he left calcutta but he still retained a share in the business and had a claim to his share of profits arising therefrom 
"'What can my business relations have to do with this inquiry?' exclaims Joel angrily. "'These questions are simply impertinent. "'We are here to ascertain the cause of Mr. Trenchard's death.' "'I beg your pardon,' replies Levison sharply. "'Medical evidence has established the cause of death. "'We are here to find out who killed him.' and to get at the murderer we have to discover the motive i venture to affirm that no motive can be ascribed to the lady now under arrest the name of levison is such a power in the criminal court that the redcastle coroner who might have restricted the inquiries of a lesser man allows mr levison full license the coroner being a medical man has not that affection for legal formulas which distinguishes some of his brother officials and is content to let another man have his share in the development of the case podmore is the next witness examined he has not forgotten the coroner's reproof and has brought his mind to as near an approach to sobriety as it is possible for a brain so steeped in alcohol to arrive at on short notice he gives pretty much the same evidence as he gave on the previous occasion, and of him Mr. Levison asks no questions. Next comes a witness whose appearance causes a feeling of compunction even in those minds most set against the accused. This is Jane Fonthorpe, who stands before the assembly in her black frock and black straw hat, cheap mourning provided by the parish doctor's scanty purse, with her face paler than it has ever been seen before and her eyelids swollen with weeping she has but one feeling and that is the conviction that sibyl is to be hung and that the hanging will be in some measure her own work she has not forgotten that speech of her uncle's about her having put a rope around her sister's neck she looks at sibyl piteously her eyes brimming with tears, and the corners of her mouth remorsefully depressed. I can't help it, Sybil, she whispers. It isn't my fault. Do you know the nature of an oath, my dear? asks the coroner. I know that it is very dreadful and one mustn't do it, replies the tearful child. The question is explained to her and the oath administered, and then comes the ordeal she is made to tell everything reluctantly and with many tears she gives a detailed account of sibyl's visit to the surgery and her own remarks about the odour of bitter almonds but i know why she took that horrid stuff adds jane it wasn't to poison uncle trenchard but to poison herself poor dear thing and i know why she wanted to poison herself really mr coroner interposes joel if these childish speculations are to be admitted as evidence out of the mouths of babes and sucklings says the coroner gravely let the little girl tell us her opinion it can do no harm i know that sibyl was very unhappy pursues jane eagerly uncle trenchard wanted her to marry him pointing to joel you must not point at people says the coroner you must tell us whom you mean well then mr pilgrim uncle trenchard wanted her to marry mr pilgrim and she didn't like him and couldn't have married him if she had liked him because she had a husband already and there he is pointing to alexis 
and how can he let his wife be taken up for murder is more than i can understand concludes jane indignantly and you think your sister may have taken that poison with an idea of destroying herself inquires the coroner i am almost sure she did when we have done with these expressions of juvenile opinion i suppose we shall pass on to actual evidence says joel with a sneer you and i are at one as to the object of this inquiry i hope mr pilgrim replies the coroner gravely mr levinson asks more questions of jenny all tending to show sibyl's distress of mind at the time of her abstracting the poison and that this distress was occasioned by her uncle's endeavour to force her into a marriage with his friend it was quite dreadful at the last says jane things were to be huddled up anyhow she was to be married after a few days notice without a single bridesmaid or a wedding dress or anything and then go out to india and she had a husband already and so what could she do but poison herself or run away after this jenny is dismissed and retires weeping on the whole she has made an impression in sibyl's favour except upon some of the feminine members of the audience mrs stormont in particular who whispers to mr groshen that girl is a mass of deception to which the banker's wife nods acquiescence though not very clear as to whether that girl means sibyl or jenny sibyl keeps her seat meanwhile pale but very calm she gives an upward look at her husband now and then in the course of the proceedings a look that is full of trustful affection and which goes straight to the heart of sir wilfrid cardonnel who surveys the scene from the back of the crowd at the other side of the room sir wilfrid would give much to be in mr secretan's place ay although that awful suspicion hung over his wife the possibility of sibyl's guilt has never entered his mind although phoebe and lavinia have been loud in their denunciations and have gone so far as to say that they saw secret poisoner written upon miss fontthorpe's countenance while she was staying at the how loud will be their self-congratulations and crowings by and by when they hear that this chosen of their brothers was a married woman all the while and that poor wilford has been deluded by a designing adventuress they are not present at this examination they would not degrade themselves by being interested in this business it is all very well for the town to be in a fever of curiosity the county sits aloof amidst its gardens and stables and poor schools and vested interests and can afford to let the topic of the day go by after jenny's examination the coroner adjourns the inquiry with a view to obtaining additional evidence but before this adjournment the coroner and mr levinson talk confidentially together for some minutes and it is clear to everyone present that the additional evidence will be given by witnesses suggested by mr levison witnesses for the defence the suspended inquiry closes somewhat abruptly as it seems to the audience and there is a sense of disappointment at this unfinished condition of things alexis leaves the court full of anxiety yet more hopeful than he had been before the inquest he has seen that curious change in joel pilgrim's countenance when pressed by mr levison's questions and he is convinced that joel pilgrim is in some manner concerned in the murder 
he accompanies Sybil back to jail, and then returns to the hotel to meet his legal adviser, eager to know what Mr. Levison has to say of the day's work. Well, he asks as soon as they are closeted together, what do you think of Joel Pilgrim? I think he did the trick, replies Mr. Levison, after one of his long pauses, which are aggravating to a man as anxious as Alexis, and I think he'll bolt. Bolt? Yes, try to get out of the country. My questions hit him hard. He sees the game is up. The case is simple enough. The old man wanted to wring money out of him, a lump of money, and he was under the old man's thumb in some way. The old man could wind up his business, had a bill of sale or partnership deed that gave him unlimited power, and threatened to crush Pilgrim unless the money was forthcoming. And not being able to get the money, Mr. Pilgrim took the easiest way out of the difficulty by giving his partner a dose of prussic acid. He must have known that detection was inevitable. I'm not so sure of that. There's a great deal of ignorance in this enlightened age of ours. This man has been brought up in the East, where crime of this kind is commoner and easier than it is here. He may not be very well posted in English law or English customs. He may have thought that in a sleepy little town like this Redcastle, no inquiry would have been made as to the cause of the old man's death. He was ailing and he died, and there an end. Or he may have thought that the death would have been put down to suicide, or, supposing him to be a very bad lot, he may have intended from the outset to lay the crime at your wife's door. He knew of her possession of that prussic acid. How do you know that? From her own lips when I talked this matter over with her half an hour before the inquest. She had shown him the bottle of poison and threatened to kill herself if he molested her with such attentions as he might have thought he had a right to pay to his affianced wife. She let him know that she had the poison in her possession, and then in the hurry of her flight, she forgot the existence of the bottle and left it. She does not remember where. It was found in her work-basket, where no doubt he put it when he had used his contents. Might not just the same thing have been done by Podmore? How was Podmore to know that your wife had that bottle in her possession, or granted that he did know it, I don't see his motive. Servants have murdered their masters for the sake of plunder or to come into the possession of a legacy. True, but I don't think Podmore is the man. I've had the two men under my eye and have taken my measure of both. So what are we to do if Pilgrim makes a bolt? Stop him. I've taken measures for that already. I telegraphed to Scotland Yard for a man I can depend on. He came down by the first train this morning, and Mr. Pilgrim is under that man's surveillance. He'll play with him as a clever angler plays with his fish, and if it's to be done, he'll land him. But we want the bolt to be decided, and we want Pilgrim to throw up the sponge. An attempt to get away may help us fix him with the fact, for you see, the case is a very difficult one. We have to get that prussic acid bottle, known to be in your wife's possession, transferred to the hands of Pilgrim. It's not enough for us to show that there was sufficient motive for his putting the old man out of the way. We must show that he actually did the deed. I don't see how it is to be done, says Alexis despondingly. 
No more do I, just as presents. Do you think the jury were favorably impressed as regards my wife by today's examination? Well, yes, I should say rather favorably than otherwise. Your wife is very handsome, you see, and beauty has a great influence upon juries. Then that little girl's evidence, though it was awkward as to the possession of the poison, was good in some points. Children are capital witnesses if you work them carefully. They always excite sympathy. The little girl suggested a motive for Mrs. Secretan securing the poison, suicide, persecuted, unprotected, and so on. That idea fits in with her flight from Redcastle. Yes, I think on the whole, the little girl's evidence was good. It is seven o'clock by this time, and Mr. Levinson is ready for his dinner, a substantial fact in the day which he is not inclined to ignore, even though a client's life and fair name tremble in the balance. The two gentlemen dine together, Alexis too anxious to eat, a condition of things which Mr. Levison severely reproves. If you want to see your wife safely through this business, you must begin by taking care of yourself, Mr. Secretan, says the lawyer, helping himself to a second supply of fish. This salmon is the finest I have ever eaten in this part of England. Try a little bit of the back. But salmon cannot tempt Alexis, who is full of anxieties this evening. The post has just brought a letter from Dick, enclosing another from Linda Chalice, and telling him that the little boy has arrived at the Grange. He's a dear little fellow, writes Dick, but he frets a good deal about Miss Chalice, and it's as much as the maidservant and I can do to comfort him. We found a pony for him, and we are teaching him to ride up and down the meadow, which we find very consoling. He laughs and enjoys himself very much during the ride, but when it is all over, he still cries for Mammy, I'm afraid that in the process of consolation, we've given him rather more strawberries and other fruit than may be quite advisable. I dare say when you come back, he will speedily reconcile himself to his new home. He is to go and see Grandpapa Benfield on Sunday afternoon. Miss Chalice has gone to the south of France on a sketching tour. I dare say she has told you all about it in her letter. This is rather startling news to receive at such a time. His boy at home, Linda gone, he hastens to read her letter. Dear Mr. Secretan, a little quiet reflection has convinced me that you and you alone have a right to the custody of my darling Trot. Providence brought him to our home. Providence brought you there to claim your own. What can I wish for him better than a happy home and his father's love? Parting with him is a wrench that must almost break my heart, but the pain would be just the same, let the parting come when it might. Knowing this, I've made up my mind to give him up at once and send him to you this day. In order that I may not feel the loss of my darling quite so keenly as I must feel it if I stayed in the home that he has brightened, I have determined to go abroad for a short time. I'm going to Cannes, to an old lady an aunt of my father's who keeps a boarding-house there. I shall be enabled to practice my favorite art of landscape painting among strange scenes, and the change will be altogether an advantage to me. Of course, you will understand that I shall not stay away too long from my dear old grandfather. Goodbye, dear Mr. Secretan. 
may my darling trot be as happy as i wish him and a source of unfailing happiness to you i shall expect to see him grown quite a big boy when i come back to dorley very sincerely yours linda chalice alexis folds up the letter with a sigh so ends his brief romance of dorley mill that linda has been dearer to him than she should have been he knows but too well that her heart has been touched by some feeling warmer than pity for a helpless invalid he more than half suspects but he has never harboured one dishonourable feeling he has never cherished one guilty wish and he feels that in thus leaving dorley for a little while linda has shown herself as wise as she is good pity for his wife's most pitiable condition has strangled that unpermitted love in its birth he can think of linda now with a pathetic tenderness hardly akin to pain as of one he has loved and lost long ago he answers dick's letter before he leaves the hotel and gives him a string of directions about trot the things that are to be done and the things that are to be left undone no mother writing about her firstborn could be more careful he posts this letter himself on his way to the jail he spends a quiet hour with sibyl but says not a word about his boy he cannot bring himself to talk of trot within these walls it will be time enough when sibyl is free from this horrible suspicion and he can take her to chesel grange End of chapter 51